Bridgebank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridgebank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridgebank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Support for the California Report comes from the Wesley Foundation improving the lives of California's children and youth at risk. The California Endowment, working to achieve health and justice for all. Learn more at calendow.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected, on the web at theschmidt.org. On today's California Report magazine, we listen in as a conservative Trump voter sits down to dinner with a liberal transgender man and tries to find common ground. If somebody says, so what are you? Would you say transgender first? I would say I'm a father first. I say way to go because that's how I would identify too. And we meet a couple learning to live with fire as they rebuild the life they once had in the mountains of Lake County. You have to remember everything in your house. How many rolls of toilet paper? How many notepads? How many? It's like, really? You kidding me? Plus, we talk with a surfer and author about how the ocean can help us regulate our feelings. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. A lot of us are told not to talk politics at the dinner table, especially if your guests fall on different sides of the political spectrum. But as Bianca Taylor tells us, a new movement called Make America Dinner Again breaks this rule in a big way. It's the latest installment in our series, Start the Conversation. It's 6 p.m. and the dinner guests are just arriving at this downtown San Francisco loft. A young Bolivian woman who works at Facebook a bar owner who describes himself as a trifecta, Boy Scout, frat boy, and Marine, a UC Berkeley graduate student whose family voted for President Trump, a conservative lawyer, and a transgender adoptee. They've never met each other until now. After the gourmet pizzas and salads are delivered, the facilitator, Haley Stewart, ushers the guests to a big round table and lays down some ground rules. I really try not to make judgment statements. Don't say, you're bad, you're wrong, you're crazy. Try and put those into I statements. Um, so this, this made me feel. Justine Lee co-founded Make America Dinner Again, a day after the presidential election. She says she wanted to put her energy into something productive to heal what she saw as a huge national divide. Dinner felt right. People can look around and just recognize how special it is to get you know, to step outside their bubble and outside of their daily work grind and um, just come together. All of tonight's dinner guests have applied online to be here. They enjoy their pizza over small talk 
And once the plates are cleared, are excited to do the work of bridging the differences they know they walked in here with. In the first exercise, they're paired up and asked to find one thing they have in common. I listen in on Walt Shufflo and Min Matson's conversation. You grew up in South Dakota, right? I'm from North Dakota. Midwest? Not only the Midwest, the Dakotas. But other than that, these men are very different. Min is transgender, liberal, and was adopted from Korea as a child. A few years ago, he adopted a son of his own, Aiden. Min's arms are decorated with colorful tattoos, and he wears a purple checkered shirt, his favorite color. Walt, he's a white conservative who voted for President Trump. He's a father of four and works as a lawyer in San Mateo. They're still talking about the Dakotas when Haley gives the next instructions. We're going to give each of you guys 10 minutes, and you're going to share answers to two questions. What has shaped your identity, and what has shaken it? Walt starts. He says he's been upset by how hostile the Bay Area felt to conservatives after the 2016 election. It was very disappointing to me to hear the things that were said to me in particular and to my friends. Meanest things I can possibly imagine, and it really pissed me off. And he feels like we're going backwards. I'm old enough to recall the 60s. You know, there was a lot of stuff happening then. There were race riots. I really thought that those days had gone away. Um, but we're right back at it. You know, there are a lot of colleges I wouldn't send my kids to anymore. Berkeley is one of them. I know people think that the, most of the racism is in the South or the country. I think most of it's here. Then it's Walt's turn to interview Min. What about your identity has been shaken, challenged, or enhanced? As a person of color, we see the, the most recent demonstrations um, of clear signs of very divisive racism, as you talked about. There's a lot of things in the media that talk about um, the target of trans people, including the military. Also, um, seeing in the media, you know, the fact that my son is Latino, he's, he's Mexican, he's from Texas. His birth family, parts of his birth family are from Mexico. I think seeing that who he is is under attack, and he doesn't even know it yet. But then there's a connection. Is your identity, do you, if somebody says, so what are you, or some, I'm not thinking the right words, I'm sure, would you say transgender first? I would say I'm a father first. You're a father, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> way to go. I'm a father first. <laughs> I, say, I say way to go because that's how I would identify too. It seems like Walton Min could have talked about fatherhood all night. But Haley Stewart, the facilitator, interrupts the group to take them one step further into something she calls radical empathy. She tells them that when they regroup, each person will share their partner's story, but in the first person. The idea is that if you can listen and then share out someone else's story as your own, you can internalize it and create a deeper empathy. Um, do we have any brave volunteers to go first? I am Min Matson. Um, I was adopted in Seoul, South Korea. Um, I grew up as a young woman and then transgendered. And I'm a father. Um, I have a son who is uh, four years old. Um, it's uh, transgender seem to be targets. Uh, and uh, since I am transgender, I think that is a difficult thing to do. Uh, I am proudest of being a father and a son. Then it's Min's turn to tell Walt's story in the first person. Many of my family members are small business owners, and a lot of them work in agriculture. So I learned a lot from them and what that looked like, and I always really respected um, the, the work that they do. And um, people talk about the South as being really racist, but I really think that the Bay Area is very racist. On campus, there's race riots and 
Um, you know, there's a lot of really uh, things that feel like they were done, and now they're back again. After the dinner, I pull each of them aside to ask them what they learned about themselves and their partners. I think that Walt and I would probably be two of the least likely people to really connect um, in them. I very much appreciate him. I think he is a very, very good-hearted person who has felt hurt and has felt left out in some spaces. Min and I dis definitely disagree politically on issues, um, but uh, the thing I like about him is he's facing life's challenges in a positive way. He's trying to make things better for himself and his family. And uh, one thing I really liked, he told me tonight, um, the two most significant things in his life was the first time he heard his adopted parents call him son and he heard his uh, little boy call him father. And I can identify with that. In just a few hours, a white conservative Trump voter and a transgender Korean adoptee broke bread, shared their stories, and came away with something that seems to be lacking these days, respect. But the guests here tonight raised some questions. Once we find out what we have in common, what would it take to do the difficult work of hashing out our differences? How do you scale this kind of experiment beyond just eight people in San Francisco? The Make America Dinner Again organizers have created an online toolkit to help people host their own dinners. Their hope is that people continue to meet, eat, and that the radical empathy keeps growing. For The California Report, I'm Bianca Taylor. Between earthquakes, fires, and hurricanes, a lot of us have been thinking about what's important to us, what we'd fight to keep if we faced a natural disaster. Those questions aren't theoretical to people in Lake County who survived a massive wildfire two years ago. When the smoke cleared, the fire had burned up 70,000 acres, destroyed nearly 1,300 homes, and killed four people. KQED reporter Suki Lewis grew up in Lake County, and she went back to check in on how some of her friends are recovering. I meet up with my friends Deb Halloran and Mel McMurrin outside the two-bedroom manufactured home they're renting in a small neighborhood near Cobb Mountain. It's dusk right now. You can hear a few birds out. And we're looking at some burnt trees, some trees that aren't burnt. Uh, we're looking at a um, kind of a bowl that used to have a lot of houses. Yeah, one, but we also see signs of progress, a neighbor's newly rebuilt home, complete with lush vegetable garden. And we have birds now, though. This is great. After the fire, it was, that was the worst thing for me. We just, there was no birds for months. Time up here is delineated by before the fire and after the fire. So we literally lost everything. And time for Deb and Mel has felt like being caught in quicksand moving six times in two years and trying to keep a job on top of dealing with the nearly endless task of cataloging their former life for the insurance adjuster. The process is overwhelming. You have to remember everything in your house. How many rolls of toilet paper? How many notepads? How many? You, it's like, really? you kidding me. Part, part of this, not just the drudgery, but the dredging 
that's right. uh, up the loss. You're just constantly going through that. They didn't just lose clothing, books, photographs, and a roof over their heads. They lost time. I remember us saying, why, why did they give us two years to rebuild? That seems like a lot. Oh, and my God, you need five. Yeah. But they are rebuilding. Puffs of Red Lake County dust settle on our feet as Deb and Mel show me a plot of land on the edge of a valley. Acres black with dead trees dominate the vista, but there's a patchwork of vineyards and tall gray-green shoots of oak sprout from blackened tree stumps. We've got the foundations up. They're all ready to be inspected. And a lot of people are experiencing this building, and they get to a place where they can't move on because there's no inspectors. We're short-staffed. That's Lake County Supervisor Rob Brown. We don't have staff on a good day, let alone with all the building that's going on for the rebuild and just normal stuff that's going on in the county. So he's come up with a solution to the inspection crisis that pretty well describes the kind of people who live here. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Well, I've just completed 12 inspections. I'm helping the building department. That's right. He's doing it himself. He's a supervisor, not a building inspector, but he jumped in after three county building inspectors quit. And they're making progress. Some neighborhoods still look like moonscapes, and Brown says he has no idea how many of the homes that burned will ever be rebuilt. The landscape will take time to recover, and so will the people. Right now, you can feel how warm it is. This afternoon when that wind picks up, I guarantee you there's not a person on that hill that's not going to stop and notice that wind and notice the heat. A perfect storm of record temperatures, drought, and high winds made the Valley Fire intensely destructive. But fire has always been a fact of life up here. Already this summer, there have been half a dozen small fires in Lake County. One was just a half mile up the road from Deb and Mel. I lost it. It was, that was just like so we pa- oh, and, so here? we started we started you know we got the cat carrier we got our suitcases out. Firefighters put that fire out before it became a threat. But I had to ask Deb and Mel why they chose to stay here, living with fire. They told me there were practical reasons, like limited finances, but also... It feels like my home. You know, the other thing is, is when you come close to a disaster like that, it really kind of focuses. It's like, not only where do I want to live, where do I want to die? Where, where do I want to be? For Deb and Mel, that place is here in the mountains with their loved ones and their community that is slowly coming back. For the California Report, I'm Suki Lewis in Cobb Mountain. We've been bringing you stories of Californians whose lives have been impacted by the Vietnam War. We reached out to you, our listeners, and many of you responded with your memories. This one comes from a woman who was eight years old when her family was sent to live on a military base in the Philippines in 1966. My name is Angela Short. I live in Sacramento, California. And during the Vietnam War, I was living on Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. My father, Richard Short, was a loadmaster. And his job was to load ammunition, food, and personnel fly to the other side of the world, to Vietnam, and usually they were dropping into fire. The worst was going to the hospital because we went to the same hospital as as the guys who were injured. A lot of them were missing body parts. They had tubes going up their arms and bandages all over. 
they would all have the what they call the one mile stare. It's like they they were alive, but they weren't alive. I would run past them, and you couldn't really get around it. You run past them, and then there's another one and another one. <laughs> I used to think about my father not coming back, but I would think about it and I would push it away because if I dwelled on it, it would it would eat me up. War is more than hell because it doesn't stop when the people die. That's why horror movies don't scare me. I've seen real horror and it doesn't compare. Angela Short's father, Master Sergeant Richard Short, made it back home from Vietnam, but he didn't talk about what he saw there until more than three decades later. He passed away last summer. Next week, we're heading to San Diego to meet people whose lives were changed by the Vietnam War in very different ways. A Marine, a refugee, and an anti-war protester. I was really angry at them. I said, why am I talking to these guys? They just came back from Vietnam. They're bragging about the stuff they did over there. But I slowly realized that they needed to talk about it because in their heart, they didn't think it was right. Join us next week on the California Report magazine for a special show devoted to California and the Vietnam War. So what is an 83-year-old woman who surfs the cold waters of San Francisco's Ocean Beach have in common with a Buddhist monk hiking through the Himalayas? Well, they're both people author Jamal Yogis encounters as he scours the planet looking for the secrets to internal happiness. In his new book, All Our Waves Are Water, Yogis is a Bay Area surfer, journalist, and meditation teacher, and he joins us now to talk about his book, which chronicles his quest for the perfect wave and for an internal life that can weather storms, lulls, and thrilling rides. Hey there, Jamal. Hi, Sasha. This book really chronicles your travels to places like Mexico, Bali, the Himalayas, and in large part does talk a lot about what surfing and meditation have in common. What is that connection? When you're out surfing, there is this sort of instant solitude that happens because you can't bring your cell phone. You are with the elements. You have to be present because the ocean is very dynamic. So it's a little bit of a shortcut to some of the states of solitude that you might find in a Zen monastery. Well, this is a follow-up to your first memoir, Saltwater Buddha, which was basically about leaving your home, your military dad in suburban Sacramento, buying a one-way plane ticket to Hawaii without telling your parents, and just like going off in search of the wave. I want to just play a clip from the documentary film based on that book. Back home, I'd been on this rebellious tear, DUIs, suspended from school for drugs. I was on probation. 
And I knew I needed a change. And I remember reading in this book about Hawaii that when the surf was too big, even for the chiefs, it was called a wheelie, a word that meant that the gods were surfing. And I knew that if I could learn that sport, the sport of the gods, that everything would somehow clarify. Everything would get better. So how did those big teenage moments, learning to surf, and then spending a year in a Buddhist monastery as a teenager, shape you? Uh, It was hard, and I was lonely. And I think you have to bump up against suffering, though, to really want to look deeper into who you are. And so that was sort of my introduction both to surfing and to sort of a, a real loneliness. And so I thought if I can use surfing as a sort of transition between this meditative place and the world, uh, I'll be in good shape. And I think I still do that. I actually read your book while I was on the beach in Hawaii on vacation. And I thought a lot about the language that we use to describe emotion. We talk about waves of fear washing over us, panic, happiness. It's It's a really good metaphor for not getting caught in those emotions because you know a wave if you're caught by it and you fight it that it holds you down and you run out of breath sooner and it doesn't really do any good because the ocean's stronger than you and it's sort of similar with fear or sadness like if you have a wave of one of those powerful emotions and you fight against it it doesn't really help the situation but if you sort of let go and experience it it kind of passes through. And that was a metaphor I've had to come back to again and again because I think I didn't really learn how to feel emotions as a kid. You know, I come from this long line of military men. And so I had to learn this both in surfing, how to let go when you're being held down by a wave and how to let go when an emotional wave is coming through. I'm still learning it. Hmm. You've written a lot about fear, um, particularly for you, for example, surfing mavericks, those big waves on the California coast, or, or dealing with your fear of failure as a writer with your career. What does fear teach us? I always say fear is a gift because every time you break through a fear, you sort of realize how much you can do. It's almost like that, that challenge teaches you who you are. But also fear teaches us about labels and how we make things negative that don't need to be because all fear is when you break it down biologically is like a shot of espresso in the body it's like saying hey you better do something and I think the word fear has become so negative that we'll stack more negativity on top of this emotion this sort of stimulation so I think fear can teach us a really fundamental lesson kind of a zen lesson about how we get in our own way and don't just feel things as they are. Jamal Yogis, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Jamal Yogis is the author of the new book, All Our Waves Are Water, Stumbling Toward Enlightenment and the Perfect Ride. Boisterous drumming from some of the Oakland A's most diehard baseball fans. 
At every home game, they bang out beats, different ones for each player and each action on the field. You can find the informal drum corps in section 149 in the bleachers of the Oakland Coliseum. They got their start nearly two decades ago, and it seems like they're going to remain a fixture at A's home games. The team just announced their intention to build a downtown ballpark and remain rooted in Oakland. We spent a home game with some longtime drummers, Will McNeil, Andy Cho, and the California Report's own Nina Thorson, who drums for the A's when she's not making radio. First, we hear from the unofficial band leader, Brian Alerningus. Hey, my name is Brian Alerningus. Our atmosphere here is pretty active, pretty festive. It's always a party, and that's what attracted me here. I've been here all my life. My parents sat out here. My grandparents used to sit out here. I'm Will McNeil from Hayward, California. Our group started bringing the drums about 2006, 2007, and they've been banging away ever since, and I can't complain. They help bring a lot of atmosphere to this place. I wave a flag, and I'm a fill-in drummer when need be. Four! Four! My name is Nina Thorson. I think that's one of the things that people have come to expect when they come to the Coliseum, and it's part of the unique Oakland Coliseum character. They are hitting the ball hard, boy, I tell you. Strike. That's two strikes to get two beats. Then we go a little nuts on the third strike. Funny thing about it, most of us are not drummers by trade. And we sound pretty damn good on TV sometimes, you know? It's pretty amazing. I'm like, wow, we came up with that. We have tambourines, cowbells, little hand drums. If you want to come and hang out with us, you will be welcome to do that on the first day that you get here. That ball hit game. Get up! Get up! Yeah! Been here long enough, you can almost tell that ball's going. You're like, oh, that's gone. <laughs> we have a different beat for each player. They're not random at all. Second base spin. Number eight. Yeah. Lowry! Like this beat, it's a continuation of the song. Oh, should I? Yeah! That's the way! What's different here is that instead of saying, let's go Giants or let's go Dodgers, it's let's go Oakland. It's about the city and the community, it's not just about this particular iteration of this franchise. So it's, let's go Oakland. Let's go Oakland. Let's go Oakland. The isn't the biggest in the world, but anytime anyone wants to be an A's fan, we got to welcome them in. Whether it's 5,000 or 50,000 in this place, it's just, I love it, I know, I'm, I'm an Oakland guy. Well, a couple of years ago, I was scared beyond belief I was going to lose my favorite baseball team, my favorite team, period. But now I'm a lot more reassured that we're not going anywhere. I'm thankful and just relieved, honestly. We call ourselves the family, so it's something that, you know, that we embrace, you know, we're very, you know, very close. We spend more time with each other, more than... We do with our own family at times, you know. Two good friends of ours met here in the bleachers in 2013 that are now happily married. So you can find a lot of things in the bleachers, apparently. 
Sometimes you'll find the love of your life right here in the bleachers, and it's pretty cool. Tina Rubio produced that postcard. We heard from drummers Brian Alerningus, Will McNeil, Andy Cho, and our own Nina Thorson. If you want to see and hear more from the Bleacher Diehards, we've got a video at CaliforniaReport.org. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Every week, we take you on a road trip for the ears to meet the people and visit the places that make California unique. You can listen to us wherever you are, subscribe to our podcast, and let us know what you think about our show. Send us a note at calreport at kqed.org. Our director is Susie Racho. Our senior editor is Victoria Maulion. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with help from engineers Howard Gelman and Danny Bringer. Our team includes Bianca Taylor, Peter Arcuni, Ryan Levy, Bert Johnson, Craig Miller, Ethan Lindsay, Ingrid Becker, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks. Cloud-ready firewalls engineered for today's next-generation business networks. Learn more at barracuda.com slash cloud-ready. The James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose family foundation advances the wiser use of energy and natural resources on a planet where everything is connected. On the web at theschmidt.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.